Okay, I'm glad you're here. Uh, there's a lot to discuss. We're actually at a crossroads in the calendar right now because we're finishing up um, Sefer Breshis, the book of Genesis, and we're entering into Sefer Shmos, uh, the book of Exodus. And there are very different energies in, in, in those two, in those two um, uh, constructs. And, and so this is now the, the end of Genesis, the end of Breshis, and we're talking about Yaakov Avinu, um, our Holy Father Jacob, leaving this world and blessing all the tribes, but special attention is given by the Torah to the blessing of Yosef's two children that were born in um, Egypt, uh, Menashe and Ephraim. And so we're going to talk about that a little bit and, and just, just all the things surrounding it, because it's a very... It's a very amazing, it's a very amazing sort of like um, personal, but also spiritual kind of thing that comes down and gives us a lot of insight into to Jewish history and our own lives as well. So, so let's just go for it. Um, Yosef brings Menashe and Ephraim, these two children that were born to him, to, to Jacob, and he puts the older one by... Jacob's right hand, because the right hand is is the is is the sort of the more spiritual of the two hands when you want to give a blessing. In fact, you should just know on a very practical level, when you say the blessing over food, that you pick up the food in your right hand, right? And if you give charity, you give it with your right hand. So just you should know that. So anyway, he puts the older one by uh, Jacob's right hand, and the younger one, uh, Ephraim by Jacob's left hand, and he's going to get the blessing. All right, so what happens is, is that Yaakov, who's now almost blind at this point, there's sort of like a debate whether he could see shapes, so let's just say he's just about blind at this point. He reverses his hands, and now he puts his left hand on the eldest's son and his right hand on the youngest son. And Yosef is like, what is going on? And he grabs his father's hands and he tries to correct them um, so that the right hand is on the oldest and the left hand is on the youngest. And, and, and Yaakov says, basically, I know what I'm doing. Okay, so now let's just pause there and just now just sort of like take a bunch of step backs and just kind of just talk about this moment before we get to the actual blessing part of it. So, you see, I think that um, I think that Yosef. This is my my this is my read of it. I think that Yosef was really expressing a certain almost desperation to his father when he's trying to reroute uh, his father's hands. And you see, historically, you see a theme going through the entire Torah, um, which is that the youngest is supplanting the eldest. You see it with with Yaakov and Esav. Yaakov is the younger one, and then he buys the right to be the firstborn. Right? That's a whole study in itself. You see it with the brothers. Um, Yosef is not born first at all. I mean, there are many brothers who were born before him. And yet, Yosef is given this sort of like this coat of many colors. He's given... 
you know, this special treatment by Yaakov Avinu and is sort of made the, the, the leader, the chosen one. And that causes all sorts of disruption within the family that they say we're still trying to rectify to this day. Right? You also see it with, with um, Aaron and Moshe. Moshe is the younger one. And he discusses this with Hashem. Hashem says, take the Jews out of Egypt. And Moshe says to God, I have an older brother. And God says, don't worry, your, your older brother's going to be so happy. <laughs> don't worry. So, but again, the younger supplanting the older. And then maybe the best example, although it's not discussed as much, is King David. King David is the youngest of all the brothers, and he's elevated to the top. And we say that's the soul of Mashiach. So you have this theme running through the entire Torah. But Yosef has borne, you know, tremendous, tremendous difficulty from the favoritism that was granted him when he was not the firstborn. And it's as though he's making a plea to his father when he's straightening out his hands. Which, by the way, you have to understand is on some level to the extent that we can say this, a tremendous chutzpah to like grab his father's hands and to try to, you know, correct them. And to assume that Yaakov Avinu, right, who's considered the greatest of Abraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. Why, 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 by the way, just so you know, because Yaakov was the culmination of Abraham and Yitzhak. It's not that it's an even playing field and we say, no, 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 Yaakov is the best of the three. No, no, no. Yaakov is the culmination and the embodiment of the three. That's why we say he's the choice. Okay? So to, to assume that at this climactic moment of blessing at the end of his life that he doesn't know what he's doing is a little bit of a chutzpah. Right? So, so, but it's coming from this almost traumatized place that it's as if Yosef is saying the following. Let's just be very clear right now. Saying... Now, I, these are my words, but it's almost saying, you know, Father, look at all of the trouble that's come from putting the younger over the older. Right? Because even in Yaakov Avinu's life, how he had to run from his life because Esau wanted to kill him. He had to go into exile for a good portion of his life. Let's just, we're finally through the whole thing. All the family is now together. Let's just straighten out the lines of history right now and give the blessing to the older and then comes the younger. Right? That's what it seems like Yosef is trying to implore his father to do. And then the idea of order entering into the world. So what is Yaakov Avinu saying back to him? Yaakov Avinu, it seems, is saying back to him, you know something? There is order in this world, but it's God's order. <laughs> and it's no less order just because you don't understand it. And this is the way it has to be. And if you think about it, the, one of the sort of ironies, kind of like one of the inside jokes in, in, of Judaism, is, is what we call the Seder, Seder night. Because Seder means order. And if you look at the actual way the Seder is conducted, it's, it's completely chaotic. It's completely chaotic. You're, 
you're, you're holding up the matzah, now you're not, now you're taking the matzahs off the table, now you're putting them back on the table, now you're covering them, now you're uncovering them, now don't fill the cup, now fill the cup, now wash your hands, but don't eat any bread, now wash your hands and say a bracha and eat bread, and I, there's so much, it's a balagan. And then all of a sudden you're in the middle of halal, let's take a break, who, who takes a break in the middle of halal? Let's take a break, let's eat, let's eat a meal. Like, there, there is no order to the Seder, and yet, what are you talking about? There's no order to the Seder. It's called the Seder. There is, of course there's an order. It is the order. So, so, so this is what Yaakov Avinu, and it's interesting because we're talking about what is the Seder all about? It's, it's Passover night. It's Pesach night. They say it's the night of redemption. It is, it is you know, it's a, it's a reflection of all of history. And, and what, is Yo, what are Yosef and, and, and Yaakov talking about on a deeper level right now in terms of the younger going first or the older going first or uprooting the whole thing? This is all about the redemption as well. So, so let's, there's, there's so much to discuss about this. Let's, let's go deeper. You see... Something beautiful, absolutely beautiful, takes place at the moment of this blessing. And it's something that we live with in, 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 in our homes on a weekly basis. Because children are blessed Friday night, and they're blessed in the name of um, uh, Menashe and Ephraim. Ephraim and Menashe. They're blessed... And we, 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 we summon their names before we give the bracha to children. Because Menashe and Ephraim, unlike previous brothers, let's talk about some of the previous brothers. How about Cain and Abel? Right? These are the first two brothers in Torah. And it's also the first murder that takes place in the world. So the idea of a family of brothers actually getting along... And then we know what happens with Yaakov and Esav. And we know what happens with Yosef and his brothers. Right? So this is the first example in the Torah where two brothers are absolutely getting along. And here's a moment where the younger one is about to get the blessing that, normally speaking, should go to the older one. And you see that the older one isn't saying a word. There's no fight taking place whatsoever. This is incredibly redemptive. And then the next set of brothers after this are Moshe and Aaron. And Moshe and Aaron are getting along absolutely fantastically well. Like maybe the, the, the greatest example of two brothers getting along like that will ever be, that ever was and will ever be. So you see this amazing shift that happens after... after um, Menashe and Ephraim, right? Now listen to this. So, there's a pattern. I don't have the source for this, but I read this, and I'm adding, I'm adding the end. You have this whole sequence of Aleph and Mems. Okay, and you should know, actually, now that I'm thinking about it, there are three primary, the Sefer Yetzirah talks about three mother letters of the Aleph Bez. Wow, this is deep. Three mother letters. And, and these, these letters are sort of like these 
I guess you could describe them as sort of more exalted vessels for divine energy. Because, you know, all of the letters are basically um, kalim. They're all vessels holding divine light. But there are three senior letters. And these letters are Aleph, Mem, and Shin. So, interestingly, and these correlate with the top three spherot as well, you should know, right? Keter, Hachman, Bina, or Hachman, Bina, and Das, depending on how you're formulating the top three spherot. But anyway, so, so let's just talk about these two letters for now, Aleph and Mem. So Aleph and Mem, you have Esther and Mordechai. So there, this is, this is an idea of redemption, right? Because the whole Jewish people were about to be eradicated at the time of Purim. You also have Aaron and Moshe, right? This is, this is, uh, this is another expression of redemption. They, they're the ones who were the point men for taking us out of Egypt. And we say in the name of the Zohar that the future redemption is based on the redemption from Egypt. So again, redemption. Now listen to this. You also have Eliyahu and Mashiach. This is another Aleph Mem, right? Which is the ultimate redemption. And now I want to add Ephraim and Menashe. So, so, so here you see a support for Yaakov Avinu's approach, which is that while it looks like I'm upending the, the order of the world, this is actually the Seder of the world, and it's culminating in Ephraim and Menashe, Aleph Mem, which is also all these levels of redemption, including Eliyahu and Mashiach, the ultimate redemption. And of course, it's not coincidental that this is correlating with two brothers getting along. In other words, the ultimate peace comes when we all are together. When we're together and we're not fighting and when we can experience what we feel is a personal slight to our honor, like I'm sure Menashe must have felt on some level, right? And yet somehow not sort of like lash out, then this is, this is awesome. This is awesome. This is peace. This is Shalom, right? And Shalom is not just peace, it's the name of God. And it means the realization of the totality of everything. Right? Okay. Now I want to go deeper. I want to go deeper. So, so, Yaakov Avinu has a moment of hesitation before he gives the blessing to Ephraim and Menashe. He has a moment of hesitation. And the Medrash comments on this. And, and it says that Yosef, during this moment of hesitation, did a couple of things. Bless you. One of them was pray. Another is that he showed him his ketubah. It's another um, expression of, of, of what happened. Um, because Yaakov Avinu was questioning, like, like who, who, who are these people, Ephraim and Menashe? Okay, we're going to go into it a little bit more. But I want to discuss this idea for a moment of this moment of hesitation. And we're just going to discuss another topic for a moment, but it's just to introduce 
an explanation of why Yaakov Avinu hesitated, okay? I had a discussion, a, a, you know, would I think, I think for both sides, for me and the person who I was discussing this with, I think it was a very painful discussion, I think, for both of us, okay? This person is a very, very smart, very educated, highly educated person, very sincere, very sincere, but much more, um, let's say, academically and um, this world oriented. That's, that's how he sees the world. I, you know, also am academic, I mean, you know, and, um, and, and try to be very, very realistic about science and, and everything like that. I, I take all these things very seriously. Um, but I also believe in God, and I believe in that God created the world. And, and so, so, you know, I would say that there, there are many ways to describe people in the, in the world today. You know, you could come up with all sorts of different categories. But from a spiritual perspective, let's just say that there are two categories. I know I'm simplifying, but I'm making just a model for our purposes right now. Those who, you know, believe, and those who don't necessarily believe, or those who look to science as the primary indicator of what they should believe. Okay? And I think that we can explain this phenomenon, because he was, he was asking me questions about the scientific record and things like that, and was you know, almost aghast that I was not as deeply troubled by these things as he was. You know what I mean? And I was approaching it from another perspective, like giving him, you know, Torah sort of like um, foundations. And he seemed to think that, you know, like, what are you talking about? So, so I think that um, we can describe, and this is the point that I'm trying to make, that we can describe it in a very simple way. There's, I would say, those people who approach things from the below to the above, meaning that they look at this world, and based on what they see in this world, they make their determinations about whether or not there's an above, or what's going on above. And then there are other, there's the other category of people who, which I would put myself in that category, which look from the above to the below. And they take certain premises, like for instance, there's a God, and he's one, and he creates the world on an ongoing basis, and then that is their foundation, and then they look at everything else, including matters of this world, from that perspective. And, and they're very, they're, these are two fundamentally different ways of looking at the world. You see? Now, as a member of the second category, and as someone who's gone to famous schools, right? I say that, not to brag, but I say that because I, I take academia and science very seriously. But as someone who is in the above to below category, let me just tell you what my, my justification for that is, from an intellectual standpoint. Since I believe in God, and we've discussed reasons why, you know, 
dozens or maybe hundreds of times here, you know, so I'm not going to go into it all. But because I believe in God, and because I believe that God created the world and everything in it, that includes science. God, the one who created the world and everything in it, also created science. So science can't disagree with God because God created science. So that either means that you don't understand God properly or you don't understand the science properly. Or God doesn't want you to understand the science properly for whatever reason. For whatever reason. But fundamentally, there is no disconnect because there can't be a disconnect. So to me, it's sort of like, what is the more compelling reality? Is it, say, a fossil, which maybe, you know, contradicts something about their understanding of the Torah, which may be a misunderstanding of the Torah, by the way. By the way, in terms of the age of the universe, since we mentioned fossils, rabbis going back hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago, a student of the Ramban, that's approximately the 1100s, was already saying that the world was something like 11 or 14 billion years old. This is, this is in the 1200s, or maybe the 1100s, okay? That's a Torah opinion. The Vilna Gon, a couple of hundred years ago, was already saying that between the third and fourth days of creation, before the sun and the moon were hung in the sky, that there were billions of years between the first day and that day. So, so the reason why I'm emphasizing that is because any person who thinks that the normative Torah opinion is just that it's seven 24-hour days doesn't understand what the Torah is saying. Now, it could be, by the way, that it's also seven 24-hour periods because it's possible to create something that's billions of years old. If you're God, you can create something that's billions of years old. Right? So, so there's no problem on that perspective either. That's, that's a little bit more of a brain teaser there. But, but equally, you know, God can do anything. So, so, so anyway, the idea being that if you accept the premise that God created the world and that he can do anything, then you have questions. Yeah, sure, there are probably hundreds or thousands of disagreements. But they're not existentially troubling. You go, okay, well, either we don't understand it right, or there's an answer, or whatever it is. I mean, I'm not existentially troubled, because the miracle of creation itself is more phenomenal. The fact that there's a world here at all, the fact that there's time and space here at all, the fact that all of this exists at all, which is all testimony to the greatness of God, right? That in itself is the most compelling reality. So yeah, okay, so I understand. You, your carbon dating says this, and it seems to contradict that. I get it. But to me, that's a detail. Now, if you're going from the below to the above perspective, what do you mean that's a detail? I've got cold hard facts. And you're talking about, I don't even know what you're talking about. I've got, a, I've got cold hard facts right here. I don't know what you're talking about. And I'm saying, man, the fact that you even exist, how about that? <laughs> how about that? Let's start there. How do you exist? 
Okay, but then, you know, okay, so, but, but at least we've got a model right now. At least we've got a model to sort of like organize what, what could be a very sort of confusing or frustrating on both sides type of situation. You've got the, again, to review, you've got the below to above people, and you've got the above to below people. Okay? And to me, there is no shame whatsoever in being an above to below person. In fact, not only is there no shame in it, I actually think it's the more logical intellectual perspective and the more defensible perspective, from my opinion anyway. You know, so, but that's, that's me talking. Okay? You have to come to peace with it in your, in your own way. So, so now let's get back to, let's get back to the idea of this, um, of, 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 of the implication of this above to below and below to above, and we're still talking about Yaakov Avinu, and we're still talking about his blessing of the children, and why he's hesitating before he blesses Menashe and Ephraim. Okay, we're still on the same topic, don't worry. So, so, So the Zohar says something very amazing. Uh, it says that, and again, let me just set it up just a little bit before we, we, we mention it. You see, there are people who look at this world, and everything that they see and everywhere they look, they see, they see God. They look into a person's face, they see a revelation of godliness. They look at a flower, at, the, at a mountain, at the, they, they, they look at clouds. And it's all, they're, they're seeing God. They're seeing emanations of godliness. Remember, we don't want to say God because that starts to get into an idol worship pagan type of thing. But they're seeing, they're seeing revelations of, of the one God. Okay? There are other people who, so, so for them, for, for this type of personality, for them, the existence of God is obvious. It's obvious, because all you have to do is open up your eyes and look around. It's obvious. For other people, they look around and they see nature, and they go, where is God? Where is God? I don't see God. Yeah, I see the sky. I see a rock. I see a face. I get it. A baby's born. They're happy. I get it. It's nice. I'll buy you a present. Doesn't mean I have to believe in God, though, right? So it's like, that's like a whole nother perspective. Now, the name, remember, we have different, um, we're, we are, are always only talking about one God, God of Israel, right? The creator of heaven and earth. But we have different names in the Torah to describe how God manifests himself in each moment. And like, I always like to give this example, is like, for me, like, my name is David, but my son's friends call me Mr. Sachs, Right? Right? My children call me dad or daddy or something like that. My wife calls me honey, right? So, but, and, and if you think about your own life, you're also called different names. You have different names, depending on what situation you're in, how you're revealing yourself, if you will. So, so when God, according to the Torah, when God reveals himself as the architect of nature, the name that's used in the Torah is Elohim. Okay, now I'm going to say Elohim from now on, but that's, that's, that's the name that means God as revealed through nature. Okay, now remember, that's not a separate construct, because we're all, always just talking about one God. But that's just an aspect of revelation 
a, a point along the continuum, if you will. That's a revelation that we call nature. And that's the name Elohim. Okay, now we're ready for the Zohar. The Zohar says the following. If you take the letters of Elohim, you can rearrange them so that it becomes two words. Very striking, two words. We'll get to that in a moment. Which is mi ele. Mi ele means basically, who made these? So, so in other words, it's, it's describing the person who is not a believer, who looks at the world, and the presence of God is not obvious. In fact, the opposite. It, it only creates um, consternation. Who made these? What's so ironic and fascinating is that their very question contains the answer. Because mi ele are the exact letters Elohim, which is God. So what's, it's, 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 it's like, it's brilliant almost, that their very question contains the answer. So, so because mi ele is Elohim. Now, why is it fascinating that it's two words? Because mi ele, which is saying, which is, which is on some level a, a denial of God, or at least a wrestling with the existence of God, who made these, is, is now taking the oneness of God and it's, 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 it's fracturing it, right? By turning it into two words, right? Mi ele. So you have like this, this, this fracture in terms of um, the coherence of the vision of the oneness of God or the existence of God. Now, so, so now with that in mind, listen to this. The Meor V'Shemesh, right? One of the great Hasidic masters points this out. Okay, now we're back, now we're ready to return back to Yaakov Avinu is looking at Menashe and Ephraim and the Medrash says that he hesitates about giving them a blessing. Okay, and one of the explanations from the Medrash is that he sees a very wicked king descending from each of them. Uh, Menashe from one of them and, and Yehu from, from another one. And so Yosef brings his two sons to Yaakov and Yaakov looks at them and he says two words and it's right in the Chumash. He says, Mi Eile. Which is like, wow, 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 wow. Because he saw in their descendants this fracture in terms of the 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 um, the their their um, giving over an understanding of the existence of God. In other words, in other words, their legacy on some level was to be Mi'ela people who were going to deny the existence of God. Um, and. Uh, if you want to see that, by the way, where that is exactly, that's chapter 48, uh, verse 8, 48.8. Now, you have something, and uh, this is my thought, but I'm sure everyone who knows that came up with this on their own, but for now we'll say it's me. So, so the next Pasuk is so fascinating, because according to one of the opinions, at the, at the moment where it looks like Yaakov 
or at the moment when Yaakov is hesitating, it says, Yosef prayed. Okay? Now look at the very next verse, the very next verse after Mi Eile. It says, Yosef says um, that these are my sons whom Elohim gave me. Moshe, in the very next verse, reconstructs the name of God, takes the Mi'ele, and turns it back into Elohim. This is, this, is, this is awesome. This is awesome. This is awesome. That's awesome. That's awesome. Now, I want to say something else in addition to that, which is, how could he, how could he rearrange the letters and put them back together again? He could only do it if Menashe and Ephraim, if there was peace between the two of them. Do you hear that? Because try to put two magnets that are on opposite poles and try to get them to stick together. They can't come together because there's too much. The, 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 the forces are resisting unity. But if you have two brothers, even when one is slighted, in the presence of the other, but is willing to forgive it. If you have two human beings like this, then that, 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 that unity, that reconstructing of God's name, of the oneness of God, can be put together like, like, like right there, right on the spot, on the spot. Which gets us back to this idea that Ephraim and Menashe are Aleph and Mem, Ephraim, Aleph, Menashe, Mem, which is Eliyahu and Mashiach. Right, which is the ultimate coming together of the entire world. So, so this is this is for all of us. This is for all of us. The challenge to be able to see God even in nature. Right? And to know, to know that the world itself looks absolutely chaotic, but that's order. It's just order in God's eyes. And to be able to to function, to function during it. And toward that end. I just want to tell you something that Reb Shlomo Alev Shalom says on, on, this, on this topic, approaching it completely from a different angle. And we'll just kind of touch on it. It's, it's actually very deep. He's drawing from the Ishbitzer Rebbe on this. It's very deep. If you want to see the, the write-up of it, it's in, in um, the, uh, the, the uh, Sefer, the second volume of, of Breshis. Um, the book is called um, uh, Evan Shlomo, or Evan Shosh Shlomo. Uh, that Rabbi Shlomo Katz put together very brilliantly, and it's um, it's it's at the end of volume two. You can see a write-up on it. But the, what Reb Shlomo says, and this helps us to to, nav- to navigate things, is without going into the depths of it, that there is a proper role and place for remembering, and a proper role and place for forgetting. Right, because if you look at you know, all the Torah names, all are, um, 
based on some sort of life event that was going on, either in terms of the birth of the child or, or the, um, the parents, what they were experiencing at that time. And you always see, like, the, the name of the child in the Torah then has an explanation of what the name means. So when you look at Menasha, what the name means is, Yosef says it himself, it's right in the Torah, is that God helped me forget my suffering. Right? So there's a time and a place for forgetting and a time and a place for remembering. And what Rabbi Shlomo says, very beautifully, is that when you're going through your hardships in life, that's really the time to forget. Meaning to say that if you're constantly remembering all of your trauma and all of your pain, it's going to shut you down and paralyze you. And I just, I just want to give a very simple example from my own life, but I think it will just shed more light on, on what Rip Shlomo, I think, is saying. Is that I remember when I was growing up and I was playing ping pong, right? I, I, I used to like to play a lot. And let's say I'd be down by a lot of points. And the other person's about to win, and I've got a long way even to catch up, much less win. I would get super careful with my shots. Because if I, you know, if I really tried to hit it too hard, I might hit it off the table and then I'm just going to lose. So basically, being, having the, be, being like that close to failure, basically, would actually just shut me down and I wouldn't be playing my best game. And I remember when I was a kid at that time, I was watching professional tennis. And I noticed that the professionals... When they could be losing by a lot. They were still swinging and whacking the ball with full strength as though maybe they were even winning. Like it didn't trouble them at all that they were like right, right on the verge of, 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 of defeat. And I used to marvel at that. And I think that that's what Rip Shlomo is talking about in terms of the role of forgetting. That if a person is just sort of like consumed by their pain. They can't operate effectively or victoriously in the present moment. Whereas Ephraim, which is the sort of the, the culmination, then there's the role of remembering. And since we know that in the end of days, like basically there's everything falls into place. That's, that's the time for remembering, because then you can look back and you realize that all the suffering, all the pain, all the hardship, actually was part of a whole pattern that was leading up towards something that was very coherent and logical and satisfying. And so there's a role for rem remembering, but that usually comes at the end. Now, it doesn't have to say, that could be at the, like, for instance, people go through difficult periods in their life, but thank God, they end. <laughs> and then when you get to, it's sort of like, okay, uh, got out of that, that worked out. That would be a rule at that point for remembering. In other words, you don't have to reserve remembering for the end of your life. There are, there are moments to remember within your life, but there are also moments to forget within your life. And again, this, this allows us to navigate ourselves through this very, very, Orderly, chaotic world with faith. Okay. Now for some questions and answers. Okay, so um, 
Uh, I want to ask you a question about evolution because I, have, yeah, yeah. I don't remember you ever talking about evolution before. Yeah. So I'll bring that question up. So I just want to be as specific as possible. Yes, yes. So um, for uh, about uh, 15 years ago, I read an article in the Harvard Journal um, from someone named Daniel Lieberman. He's an anthropologist and he is redefining the whole fossil record. He's showing that, um, that, that, that um, if you look at the, at the evolution of, of the humans, there's Australopithecus and all different variations of um, humans till you get to Homo sapien. And he talks about how Homo sapien has evolved to be a runner. And he talks about the loss of hair and, and it's creating aerodynamics and the ability to sweat in the high forehead, cooling the blood into our head. And he talks about um, the, our, our feet being perfectly designed for running. And, uh, and he, he talks about every physical feature and how we are the best endurance runners in the whole animal kingdom. And uh, that's why we could even outrace a, a horse because it'll wear out and we can keep going. And when I read this, it, it redefined my understanding of humans. And I apply that now to my to the way I practice medicine, and every time I advise people in exercise, I, I have that in mind. So I'm using the fossil record evolution in my philosophy. I don't know how that fits in with Torah. Is that against Torah? Is it, what, is, what are you supposed to do with the fossil record when, when we, you're talking in terms of Adam and Chava, and, um, and then that, this fossil well, well, record? Well, since, since you mentioned um, Adam and Chava, let me just repeat a point and then I'll, I'll say something else, which is our tradition is, is that when Hashem created Adam and Chava, Adam and Eve, that they were 20 years old. So in other words, they were created as 20-year-olds. But if you think about that, that's a bit mysterious because they were one second old and yet they were 20 years old. So that's this idea, which is, I know, a bit of a brain teaser, but I think, it's, I think it's actually a very fascinating idea, that God can create something that's old already. In this instance, 20 years old. Or in the case of the universe, if you go by this perspective, you don't have to. There are other things to, to, to answer this, this riddle. But that God could create a universe that's billions of years old. So... That's, that's one thought. Another thought is, in terms of the fossil record itself, um, you know, it's interesting to look at who the Torah giants were at the time that, that um, all these fossils were being found, like dinosaur bones and things like that in the 1800s. And one of the leading lights of the Jewish people was someone named the Teferis Yisrael, who um, wrote a, a very masterly commentary on the Mishnah, right, uh, an aspect of the Talmud. And he was so happy when he found out that dinosaur bones were, were discovered. And the reason is, is because he said, this is what the Medrash says, this is what the, you know, what our received tradition says, that God created and destroyed many worlds before this world. So there should be, a, there, if that's true, there should be evidence, a fossil record, if you will, of all the animals and all the aspects of the previous worlds that existed. And, and, and it would make sense that they're very, very old, right? So, so there, there are many ways to, to understand these things. 
In terms of evolution itself, um, I would just say two things. One is, um, it's not my thought, but uh, I don't know who says it exactly. If you actually look in the beginning of the Torah, there's a description of what God created the first day, and the second day, and the third day, and the fourth day. And you see that they actually track in a Darwinian way, which is very interesting. That, that, and man is, man, human beings are the last creation because we're the most complicated, um, evolutionary speaking, we're the most complicated species. But you actually see that the order of creation parallels um, Darwin in, in an interesting way. And then lastly, um, lastly I would just say the following, which is that, you know, everything is ultimately traced back to, we say, a single cell. Right? Like, and then that cell then evolves in its particular way. Right? But what I would just just expand the conversation slightly. I would say, okay, let's say it's true. Let's say everything begins with that single cell, right? The question for me then becomes, this is where I would say the intersection of the below to the above people and the above to the below people begins to really take shape. Let's say you're down with Darwin. You're like, yeah, everything's good. Like, okay, it all starts with a single cell. My question is, who made that cell? And who made the fabric of time and space for that cell to exist within. And then the one, you know, at that point, you know, to me, it's very logical and intelligent to say God did. Okay? So once you then posit a God who can do these things, then God can create human beings any way he wants to. So then it becomes like all the weight all of a sudden is lifted off whether Darwin is, is right or wrong or, or, or whatever it is. Because it's sort of like, ultimately, God can do whatever he wants to do. He wants to create us from a single cell to a complex species. He wants to create us outright as 20-year-olds. Whatever he wants to do, let him do it. He's God. You know? That's his business. And, and I think, just to end on this one final point, which I think is an important point. You know, in storytelling, you have something called a red herring. A red herring is, see, basically, look, let me give you a, a, an example of a really poorly structured mystery, okay? The detective comes in, and this I'm talking about as a commercial property, like you want to see this movie or buy this book. The detective comes in, he looks around, he goes, okay, Mr. Jones did it. And then you find out on the bottom of the page, Mr. Jones confesses he infected it. Terrible, that's, you, no one will buy that. No, no, don't, they won't even let you in the office to pitch that story. Okay, what you need is what's called a series of red herrings. All right, that's a story term. I, I don't know if it's used so much anymore, but it used to be. Red herrings are false leads. You have to think, ah, Mr. Smith did it. And then you've got to spend like, you know, the first act on Mr. Smith. <laughs> Before you realize Mr. Smith didn't do it because it's Mr. Keats who did it. That's who did it, right? And then finally you get to Mr. Jones on page 100. Okay. So, so the question, and now let's be serious. The question is not how God made man ultimately. It's why he made us. How he made us, if you, if you accept the premise of a God who can do anything... How he made us is interesting, and I'm not being anti-academic or anti-intellectual. Fascinating topic. Yeah, let's, let's find out. I want to know. But, but 
ultimately, the question is why he made us. What, what are our responsibilities and obligations in this world? And so that's why I think ultimately this discussion, even though it's academically very juicy, ultimately it's a red herring. Because it distracts us from, from potentially realizing um, what we're supposed to do with our lives.